Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, friends. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Amen. Good. We're starting well. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them mature in Christ. That's the goal. So to that end, to that hope, turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles in your chairs. If you don't have a Bible, we welcome you to take one of those Bibles. We are going to read chapter 8. We're also then going to skip over to the end of chapter 10. This is sort of a big cohesive unit, and so we're actually going to do a sermon today on chapter 8 and then chapter 10, verses 23, well, through 11.1. It gets a little complicated, but we're kind of bookending this section, and we'll have some other sermons on chapter 9 and 10 in between. So we're going to look at chapter 8 and the end of chapter 10. Let's heed God's word. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet really know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So therefore, as to this eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And we know that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to idols, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. That's true. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food as really offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, and thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. We'll continue on to chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, you say, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of their conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Lord, this is your word and you give it to us because you love us. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen? How many of you have had a coach? Can't, I can't count this. Show me your hands. Okay. No, I'm not counting anyway. Most of you have had a coach, right? You might have a coach for a sport. You might have a coach at work. You might have a coach uh, for theater or vocals. Might be other things that I'm forgetting. What makes a good coach? Um, A good coach maybe has a lot of experience personally in what they have done, right? Uh, A good coach probably knows all the rules and all the strategies that are requisite to playing or doing well. Um, And a good coach is probably successful. The people that they coach do well and don't do poorly, right? And yet, someone who has a lot of experience and maybe has even been as successful themselves might still not be a very good coach if all they tell you to do is like, well, just do this. We'll just do this. We'll just do this. But I'm like, but I don't know how to do that, (laughs) right? A good coach is able to know what has to be done, how it should be done, and they know you who is before them, and they can translate that into action. They can say, okay, I see what you're doing, watch what I do. 
And then they can do something that you're able to imitate, right? I mean, if I told you to do something and then you had no possibility of it, well, you just lift the organ. Just watch what I do. I'll lift the organ, and now you do it. I'm like, well, I can't. I can't lift the organ. But, you know, you can't do that, right? I'd have to translate it somehow into something that you can do. Paul, as an apostle, as a pastor, as a coach, is seeking to do well by us by being imitatable. He is seeking to know us, but not only that, know Christ, and to be a means to translate, be like me as I am like Christ. Imitate me. Pay attention to what I do. Watch me and and follow with me. I'm here with you. Paul is walking alongside his people asking them to be imitators of him that as he is imitators of Christ because he cares for them the way a good coach cares for his players. He cares about their success the way a good coach cares about his team. And what's striking to me, even before we get into anything else, is, is the frank possibility he has of this. He doesn't launch into a bunch of caveats about like, well, I know God is perfect and you can't be perfect and he's transcendent and you're not transcendent. He just says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. God in his infinitude, his omnipotence, his grandeur, his createdness, his creativeness, like everything that is about God that we are not, he became human. In Christ, so that humans can know God. <laughs> he, he became imitatable, not so that you couldn't imitate him, but so that you could. He became like us that we might become like him. And so I'm just struck, even at the beginning, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. God wants us to be like him. And he has given himself so that we could be. And he's given others, like Paul, like our disciples, that we could imitate. So what does Paul want us to imitate? There could be a lot of things, but particularly he named something here. Right? Verse 31 and 32 here. Verse 33 too. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does Paul want us to imitate? Him seeking to do everything to the glory of God. Eating, not eating. Drinking, not drinking. Wearing this, not wearing this. Doing this, not doing this. Going here, not going here. Seeking to do everything to the glory of God. How do we give glory to someone? It's not really a term that we tend to use that often, like in our common language, right? But who who watches like the Oscars? Or the Grammys? Anyone? Yikes. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, you've watched some sort of award show at some point for something, I'm sure. 
right? Okay. All right. Do I want to do this? Who wants to volunteer for something? Okay, come here. You've won the award, everyone. Come on. Um, give your acceptance speech. What, what would you say if I gave you the award? You just won. Thank you. Who? who? Well, you could say thank you to me, but I, I just gave you, the, I'm just the announcer. You just, who do you want to thank? <laughs> you volunteered for this, I'm just saying. <laughs> My mom. You want to thank your mom? Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? My dad. That's great. Thank you. You can keep that if you'd like. Yeah. <clears throat> that was funny. Okay. But the point is, besides the being struck at the example, we would come up here. If I told you to give an acceptance speech, you'd probably know what you should do, which is thank people. Um, you recognize people. You give credit to others. And if it's sincere, you're giving credit where credit is due, right? You didn't name some random other people. You named your mother and your father who work hard to raise you and contribute to you winning that award, right? Um, we, we name those who have actually done something to contribute to whatever we are accepting. And so giving glory it's interesting, the Greek word is actually just giving consideration, thought, is I'm recognizing those who have contributed to what we are talking about. And if I might come up with an award, I've, we've won something, we've done something together, right? I might be the team captain, I might be the producer, I might be whatever, and I'm going to give the award. I'm going to recognize those who have contributed. If I would recognize team players, if I would recognize staff, if I would recognize my parents, if I would recognize grandparents, if I'd recognize friends, how much more should we recognize God who has done all things, worked all things together for the counsel of his will, who gives us life, who gives us abilities, who gives us sustenance, who gives us all things. So to do all to the glory of God is to attribute to God all credit, all honor, the recognition, the thanks, the praise. And ideally for things that actually he would want to receive glory for. I mean, if you got up here and, you know, you just totaled your car, it's like, I want to thank my mom and my dad for me learning how to text while driving. And it's like, oh, gosh. Like, you don't, want you don't want glory and recognition for things that look badly upon you, okay? So when he says do all things... In some ways, it actually then gives us a way to evaluate the things that we do. Is this something for which I could give a real heartfelt acceptance speech to God and he would delight in it? 
Or is it something that if I gave him credit for, one, he didn't do that. Two, he didn't want me to do that. And it does not look well on his character. Because if God actually could be credited with all things, and we who are in Christ represent him, then the things that we do should give him glory, not just because I give him recognition, but because they should recognize him as good. And so I wonder, do the things that you do, do they give glory to God? Or if I asked you to come up here for an acceptance speech, would it be something that you would delight to give credit to God for? This is something that the apostle is asking us. It's like a cue from a coach to evaluate the actions and the plays that we engage in. But he also gives us some idea of what sorts of things would be pleasing to God. Verse 32, 33, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. In some ways, this does not have to be overly complicated. <laughs> He's saying, well, if you want to know what's something that you should and could give glory to God for, well, is it something that you did for the sake of your neighbor? Or for the sake of just yourself? Is it something that you did to... Verse 23. Did you just... 24. Is it something you just did that was lawful? Or that was helpful? Was it lawful? Or did it build up? See, this is some of the issue with viewing that you could get righteousness from the law. Doing the law does not make you righteous. You could be lawful and unhelpful. You could be lawful and not build others up. Right? I could go the speed limit and be mean. Um, just doing something that's lawful does not necessarily help my neighbor. Paul's not really leaving you room to do something that's unlawful for the sake of your neighbor. But he is asking you, are you putting too much credence in things just being permissible or lawful instead of doing the extra work that would be helpful to your neighbor and thus the extra work that would actually contribute to the upbuilding of God that would win the prize in Christ, Christ Jesus that would give glory to God. I remember the man that in Jesus' parable that gives the talents. The one man buried his in the ground to keep it safe, which was 
in some sense, smart and lawful. Uh, and he was rebuked for it because he didn't go and invest it. So do we invest ourselves? Do we invest our freedom? Do we invest our actions? Do we invest what we do for the upbuilding of our neighbors and especially for the upbuilding, the encouragement, the support, the care of the people of God? That's what would give God glory. To say, you gave me freedom. Paul's not saying all things aren't lawful for you. He's saying, things are lawful for you. You have freedom. Now what do you do with it? To come up here and say, God emancipated me. To give me freedom. To do, to say, to act to move, and I used it for the good of my neighbor. I used it to lend someone a hand. I used it to give a kind word. God is glorified in that. And so this, we're dealing with meat sacrifice to idols. That's not something here we're commonly going to encounter. Though I just have a friend who was in Taiwan, and he did encounter this, right? Where he was invited into someone's home, and they do have food that have shrines, right? So around the world, this, while this may seem foreign to us, most of us, it's not foreign still to lots of people in the world. These are considerations that are going to have to be made. But nonetheless, we, even if this situation, this case itself might seem a bit foreign to us, the principle here of be imitators of me by giving glory to God in everything, by seeking not my own advantage, but that of many to build them up and do what is helpful with the freedom that's given to me, that principle, that reality is still for us. Now let's go back to chapter 8, and we can look a bit more at the particularities of the situation and understand what doing things that are helpful, what being part of the body of Christ is going to look like, what glorifying God is going to look like. And this is a really intriguing situation. Because there's a disagreement over what is commendable. There's a disagreement over what is commendable, what is fitting for people in the church to do. And while meat sacrifice to idols is foreign to us, I guarantee us that arguments over what is commendable actions are not foreign to us. Should you get tattoos or not get tattoos? Should you drink or should you not drink? Should you listen to that music or not listen to that music? Should you wear that or not wear that? You all could probably think of some more examples. You probably have opinions on some of the things that I just named, right? And we might say like, well, he's dealing with things that are not sins. 
And yet some of the very point is that there are some people who might disagree. <laughs> and they think that some people are sinning because they're eating meat sacrificed to idols. So it's a tricky situation. But the situation is also that Paul says that there is something true. He's not actually dealing with a gray area per se, right? Let's look at verse 1, verse 4, verse 5. We know that all of us possess knowledge. However, verse 7, not all of us possess this knowledge. So he's saying, that sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? Like, we have the knowledge. The fact has been given to us, though not all of us truly understand this yet. Well, what knowledge is he talking about? Verses four and five. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are lots of gods and lords, right? I mean, the knowledge he's talking about is knowledge of one true God. He's not talking about something false or debatable. He's talking about knowledge of the true God. Idols are not real. There is only one God. There might be lots of people who you would follow on heaven and on earth, but there is only one God that we should follow. And so behind any of this disagreement, there is something in this situation that is rooted in Scripture, is a foundational tenet of the faith. And I say that just because there's a lot here that could be extrapolated and learned from for all sorts of situations. And we just... We do need to do that and also be careful um, because not every situation has something so foundationally dogmatic behind it as there's only one God, okay? So it's not like this situation just applies to anything where anyone might be offended by something. So we're going to look at this where Paul is rooting something in the foundational truth that there is only one God. But the question is, so what does one do with that knowledge? What does one do with knowledge? You might know that there's one God, but what does one do with it? And he says there are, there, are, there are two ways for this to be missed. There's two ways for us to miss this. I'm going to start with verse 7 and look at this second, this second paragraph here. Not all of us possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Our former associations can really mess up how we understand the truth, right? Um, I lost my, I had a good example for this. 
sweet Lisa, who has come to work for us as the administrative assistant, right, is having to learn a bunch of new things to be in our office. There are new systems, there are new things that we use, right? Randy can attest to this. We use Google. Google is the dogmatic fact of our office. We don't use Microsoft Word. That has not been an easy transition, has it been? No, okay. <laughs> not all of us possess this knowledge about the capacities of Google Workspace, but some of us, through former association with Microsoft, don't know how to use it, right? It's a silly example, but our former associations, how we have been trained and schooled and formed to view the world, do not easily change. And that's especially apparent if we're put into a new situation where the facts and the realities of that situation have changed. Some of you have immigrated to this country. Do you just know how to do things? It can be hard. You don't, you don't know the cultural mores. You don't know how to go to the DMV. I don't know how to go to the DMV. You certainly don't, right? There's a lot to learn. And if you're used to doing something one way, if you're used to having to bribe the official at the office, and then you come to a place where you're going to be arrested if you come and try to bribe the official, that's gonna be difficult. Or if you're used to not bribing the officials, some of you have had to go to mission things overseas, foreign black, like, you better get used to having to bribe the official. Or you will find this very difficult. See, our associations, how we're used to doing things, make it difficult for us to understand the new realities into which we have been put. And the associations that these folks had, and honestly, that we have, we all have all manners of associations. You grew up in certain places. You grew up with certain expectations. You grew up with certain practices. And as you come into new ones, as you come into the body of Christ that is actually saying that he will, <laughs> all things are under his feet. All things must change in the light of the glory of God. All things must bow to King Jesus. And yet it can be difficult for us to actually know what that looks like. And what kind of difference does it make, friends? Say you're in a new school. People could react to you in a number of ways, but let's say one of two. You could go in and not know how to really go through the lunch line. You could go in and not really know who to talk to about what. You could go through and not really know how to dress. You don't really know the code, and you could be bullied. Lots of bullying happens because someone by their former associations does not now know how to interact. And a question I have for the people of God is do we bully people as they want to know Jesus? Do we bully people because they don't yet know but by their former associations are still learning? Bullies are bullies, and no one likes a bully. Or you could have that person 
We all know them from movies, right? Or maybe from our own experience. The kid who goes out of their way to welcome you. The kid who goes out of their way to help you navigate the cafeteria, where to sit, where not to sit. The kid who goes out of their way to introduce you to their friends. And going out of their way could actually cost them quite a bit. And yet they take the time to walk with someone who by their former association does not quite know, but instead of causing stumbling block, walks with them through the terrain. And so my second question here for the people of God is, are we willing to lay ourselves down and be patient, patient with one another, but especially patient with those who are still coming to know Jesus and humbly recognize we're all still coming to know Jesus? Are we patient to walk with one another? This is what Paul is advocating here. If, it, if food, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, then I just won't eat it. Right? Not, not because he says meat is bad, therefore I won't eat it. He actually has just gone on several things of like, why should I be denounced? I can eat meat. I can do it. I won't. Right? But he says, but, but I just I won't do it because I'm going to lay it down because this person is trying to learn what it is to follow Christ and I would rather not eat meat than give the idea that they could just subsist in their former associations instead of coming to be part of this new place. I want them to be fully part of who we are. So I will change to let them be changed. Right? I will be patient to let them learn. I will lay myself down so that they can be lifted up. I will walk with them so that they can walk. Wouldn't we all want someone to do that for us? And glory to God that he in Christ Jesus does that for us. He who knew everything about God, he knew God, he was God, left all glory and splendor and came to earth to be with us. Talk about former associations and having to learn, right? He left all things, and we rejected him. He came to his own, and his own did not know him. But he persisted and entered in that he might love us and call us out of darkness and blindness, sickness and suffering, and learn the ways he humbled himself as a servant to the point of death. And we're not even talking about social death. We're talking about real death. And therefore God bestowed on him the name that was above every name. He glorified him. Do all to the glory of God. Christ does all to the glory of God. And he does all to the glory of God for you. For y'all. In this my Father is glorified that you may be one even as I am one. And we are united to him. That we could imitate him in doing the same thing. 
And that's the second part, the beginning of this chapter, right? The warning against bullying. I find it so intriguing, verse 1 and 2, right? This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The knowledge he's talking about is of the true God. He's not talking about false knowledge, which is what I might expect of someone saying, like, they're all puffed up with knowledge, right? I'm kind of like dismissing their knowledge in some way. But he's not, he's not talking about knowledge to dismiss. He's talking about very true knowledge. And yet they are puffed up with it. Inflamed. So inflamed with salts and whatever things in their body that it's, that it's counterproductive. And people of God, are we often puffed up with knowledge? Do we view the scriptures and following Jesus as some sort of like download or some book that we just have to read through so that we can have these things in our mind? That's like pumping air into us so that we'll eventually just float away, useless, or explode. Um, when things get messy and slippery, you kind of have to deflate to let the tires go and actually work. Things are gonna get messy, and sometimes you may just need to leave aside some things that you know to walk with someone. You may just need to be patient with them. Because even this critical, central, utterly dogmatic knowledge that we have can puff you up if it is not employed to love your neighbor. Love builds up. Sort of in wrapping this in conclusion, Jesus said that there are, yes, without the greatest commandment, right? He said the second, he gave two answers, right? The second greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You who would need to be patient. You who needs to see that you do not know all things. We have to put ourselves in the shoes, right? To, to, to humble ourselves and constantly put ourselves in a posture of saying, like, I actually don't know. I don't know fully will help us to empathize with those that more obviously don't know. And one way to do this is to marvel at God. Do you know everything about God? Raise your hand if you know everything about God. I don't know, someone might have raised their hand, it would be intriguing. Do we ever practice not knowing everything about God? We should. It's called apophatic theology, if you're interested in bigger terms. Right? It's a long practice of the church to contemplate God by contemplating 
how much, how much we just don't know. Like looking at the sun and seeing it's just blinding you with brilliance and you cannot fathom. Evelyn just asked me the other day, it's like, is the moon in the sky or is it out in space? How is it so close? I'm like, well, because it's really big. That, I, it, you can still see it because it's huge and it's right there. Like I, to fathom it and to reflect upon it. And so it shows that loving our neighbor is actually part and parcel and proceeds from loving God. That's the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, as we heard in the Shema. That was the call to worship. And you know what's fascinating about that? What's the beginning? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right, The Lord your God is one. What does Paul say in verse 6? Yet there is for us one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One God is Father and Son. One God is the Father and Jesus Christ. One God, and yet he seems to be talking about two people. At the radical basis of Christianity is a contemplation of the mystery of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that can seem ethereal to us. We don't tend to sit around contemplating mysteries. And if I advocate to you, contemplate mysteries, I might start to fade into the background of your mind as you think about the concrete worries and troubles you have of this week. Or your children are too loud, right? Or something, right? And yet, contemplating the mystery, Paul says he's the steward of the mysteries of God. Contemplating the mysteries of God is the thing that we are called into. Eternal life is knowing God, which is eternally contemplating the mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and being enraptured by him far more than any sunset you are fixed upon. And so to know God is in some sense to contemplate the mystery of the unity of God. Do we let ourselves sit in mystery? It is hard to be puffed up with knowledge if you're sitting and contemplating mystery. I want to I leave you and challenge you and charge you. What ways can you contemplate the mystery of God? One, ask. Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified, that whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. Do you ask God? He's glorified in giving you what you ask. Do you contemplate the mystery? This is eternal life, that they would know God in Jesus Christ, whom he sent. And you know what Jesus says about that? By this my Father is glorified, that I give eternal life. God is saying, I am glorified by you humbling yourselves to know who I am, not know about me, but to contemplate me in prayer. 
How do, you, how do you pray? Do you give yourself silence and solitude for prayer? Do you listen to music that can move your mind? Jesus Christ desires to be known. And so as we posture ourselves in ways to contemplate him, we are humbled so that we can be patient and love our brothers and sisters, and in that he is glorified. So friends, let us be imitators of one another as we seek to contemplate God and give him glory, and so be enabled to love one another as he has loved us. Amen? Amen. Lord, do love us, I pray. Those who love are known by you. We thank you for knowing us and leading us into your life. Unite us to be one, even as you are one, that you may be glorified. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.